Hey, on this episode of Talking Catholic, I was speaking with Ephraim Mini right here about his conversion to the Catholic Church, about his podcast, Priestly Vocation, and the ways that he believes that we can use evangelization, speaking directly to, specifically to Black Americans, to bring more of them into the Catholic Church. So, really great show. Hope you tune in. And we'll begin right after this eight-second introduction, Talking Catholic, and I will see you on the other side. Ephraim Mini, welcome on to Talking Catholic, man. How you doing? I'm all right. How you doing? Yeah, pleasure to have you here. Hey, I bumped into you, man, a number of years ago. I think I first ran into you on the Twitter. And so I'm going to follow you on there. You posted really good stuff and stuff to make, you know, make me think. So I decided to have you on the show. So, yeah, yeah welcome back in one, one more time, man. Thank you for uh, inviting me on and thank you for, you know, pre pre, pre- preview of my content on Twitter. <laughs> Just be yeah. rambling sometimes. <laughs> That's all it's all good though. But um and you man, some 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 of the people who you share on Twitter, sometimes you retweet their comments. I end up following them. It's like, oh, so you retweet some pretty some pretty interesting people that um I end up following. So I appreciate that. But you're in Houston, Texas, right? Right. Yeah. Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Um and another thing I noticed about you is that you have this podcast where you talk to priests about their vocation and, and what their uh, what brought them. Um, you talk about their ministry and what, what brought them into um, their vocation story, basically. Um, and right. I, you ask them for advice for future priests, and it's a really neat podcast. It's short, it's quick, and it's, it's I like it a lot. Um, where can people find that podcast at? It's on Anchor uh, Podcast, and it's also on, like, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, any major outlet where podcast is at. But it's mainly distributed through uh, Anchor, and it's called Priestly Passion. Priestly Passion. I'll put some links to it below in the description box for those who want to jump over there and take a listen to it. Really, really good, especially for young men who are thinking about um, um, press. Maybe you might have a vocation. So, Um, But, yeah, so... What are some interesting stories that? Uh, well, I mean, what got you wanting to do that? Because you're not you're not discerning a vocation yourself. You're a married man. You guys have you started a family. What what made you want to start that that podcast? Yeah, that's a real good question. So in 2018, when I entered the church in Easter Vigil, shortly a few months later, you know, the whole Pennsylvania grand jury McCarrick uh, situation hit the fan, and so. I noticed a lot of people had created like a lot of resentment and a lot of anger toward the clergy. And I, I, I know, you know, I work in education, you know, all teachers aren't bad, you know, they got some rotten apples. And so just like the priests, you know, there's some good priests and then there's some horrible ones. And so it was, I just thought it would be a really neat idea to, you know, see what inspired people to become, what inspired these men to devote their life to Jesus Christ in the sacrament of holy orders. And, uh, you know, December of 2018, I launched my first episode with uh, Father Leon Schroeder at St. Michael the Archangel, Archangel Catholic Church in Houston. And from there, you know, I've been growing, you know, seven episodes in, and, you know, and plus one religious sister who was really good right. to inspire a lot of, you know, men and women to potentially discern religious life. And so, 
uh, ever since December 2018, I've just been praying and hoping that, you know, my podcast will uh, open the doorway to some young man or potentially a woman to see the sacrament of uh, holy orders or religious life in this profound way so that they can, you know, strive for holiness in that vote, in either vote, any vocation that they, you know, think will best suit them. Yeah, but I think I think that's really neat. Sometimes, I think a lot of times, perhaps I think people, some of the podcasts and sometimes sometimes the platforms we create, sometimes we're a little bit self interested in it, right? Sometimes, um, I think I started my YouTube channel before um, I ever started writing books. But you know, as an author, you know, I use my platform, you know, to, to um, promote some of my books. I think a lot of people do that. They they start something to promote something they may be doing. I, I don't think anything sinful about that. But I like yours. Because, like I said, you were a discerning priesthood. You were just a good Catholic guy wanting to do something good for the church. Not very self-interested, man. And I think that says a whole lot about you. It speaks of humility. And um, uh, it's a, and I, I pray that your, your podcast continues to be um, a blessing. And I pray that God increases that. I really do. Yeah, thank you. I've learned a lot along the way from a lot of these holy men I've spoken to that have really made parallels to my journey in uh, my call to the married life. So I noticed a lot of like little subtle parallels about the internal calling that the Holy Spirit gives you to this vocation. And you need to like basically seize the moment that the Holy Spirit is guiding you to. So hmm. I think that's a like a resounding echo in each episode that the Holy Spirit has called you and you need to make sure you be attentive to the whisper and nourish that whisper through, you know, proper uh retreats or education or and most importantly prayer so yeah. i think that's uh i think that's like beneficial you know things that we can all do to discern mm -hmm. like what's the vocation that we're supposed to have in life yeah how do you how do you go about selecting the priests that you want to talk to because i mean because <laughs> i know you a minute ago you called them the holy holy men and women um how do you how do you discern uh, pretty much. I just, I mean, the Archdiocese of Galveston Houston is, is one, a, a really large one. So I try to go mainly to the ones that's closest to my area, but I've driven, you know, in the outskirts of the, the city and the metro areas many times or a few times, but I'm really just doing a quick search engine. I'm just typing in, you know, Catholic churches in 77004. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I'm gonna go to this website. And then yeah. once I go to the website, and if I don't see, like, the priest will have, like, a, a, a quick bio and they have their email. So if the priest normally doesn't have, like, their email address, then I don't go with it. Because, yeah. I mean, that, that means I have to go through, like, the secretary and <laughs> such and such. And the, the secretaries don't ever respond or take phone right. calls. But yeah. mostly if the priest has, like, their uh, email available, then that's a good sign. But mm -hmm. even when they have an email available, it's not a certain... Uh, like I get a response back, you know, I've submitted a ton of emails and I can tell you that I've barely received uh, a lot of, I haven't received a lot of, uh, you know, feedback. I mean, a lot of, you know, agreements to come, which is why I got like seven episodes, but you know, the job of a priest is very difficult and mostly they are pastors I'm talking to, you know, they have to shepherd the congregation, they have to attend the communal needs, pastoral needs. Yeah. So I don't blame them for that because, you know, they have a lot of stuff to, offer but you know i appreciate the little 15 20 minutes uh that i am afforded when i get to meet with these men yeah 
Yeah, I didn't even realize. I don't think I realized that that you you're on location. You're not like doing what I'm doing now. You're just not Skype or a phone call. You're actually going to see them. Hmm. Right, right in the office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something, man. That's tremendous. Now you um, because you mentioned this a, a moment ago. You're you weren't born into the faith. You're you're a, a, a convert. So right, right. What um. Who were you when you were coming up as, as a kid, man? What was going on in your, in your faith journey? Uh, so the, it's really interesting about my conversion story to the, where I am now, because I have like three profound, uh, three profound conversions that ultimately okay. led me here. But okay. growing let's talk, up, let's talk about those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So growing up, you know, my mom, my father is a Ghanaian immigrant, and my mom's, you know, Black American, and so. I mean, growing up, we they never exposed us to religion. So in my household, uh, like we didn't have any religion at all. It was just a irreligious household. And it was only a few years ago that asked my mom, like, "Hey, why come? How come you didn't never, uh, you know, talk about this and that with us?" And she said, "I purposely, you know, raised you guys without religion so that you can find it on your own." And I just always thought that. I mean, when she told me that a couple years ago, I was kind of shocked. Cause I'm like, man, why would you withhold something so? you know, vital to, you know, a life I probably could have had better and made way better decisions. But I mean, growing up, my mom grew up in the 1960s and 70s. So she was influenced by so many different isms, sexual revolution, black power movement, uh, secularism. So all those different things, you know, dramatically and profoundly impacted her worldview. You know, my mom even hate, she only like institutional religion. So you know, those are some things as my my kid growing up. So we didn't go to church at all. But thankfully, my mom's brothers and sisters, she's one of seven. But they are like ministers, wives, first ladies and pastors. So every time I would go to their house on the weekend, uh, I would have to go to church. And so growing up from about one uh, 14, getting these little small kernels of church lock ins and all that kind of stuff. They were really having like a real strong attachment to the faith. And, you know, I made a lot of poor decisions later in life, like teenage year going into high school. You know, hurt a lot of people through the sins that I did. And, uh, you know, I think now in retrospect, I wish I would have. I mean, I, I would have liked to think that I would have made a better decision if my mom would have raised us for religion. But, you know, God has purposes for those things in life. Yeah. But, you know, something happened in high school. Uh, you know, I was growing through this atheist, nihilist phase where I really didn't see no purpose in, you know, all that was going on. Mm -hmm. I didn't really see a clear purpose in life. And I was just like, oh, you know, I'm just going to graduate and, you know, what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, my brother, who was like the closest to me, I'm one of four and I'm the youngest. You know, he from about 12 to like 17, he had numerous run ins with the law. And so he has like before I'm 17, he has like a rap sheet already. Oh, and wow. so, you know, a lot of my, my mom's brothers and sisters, you know, are scrutinizing me like, yeah, he's going to probably, I mean, they're not saying this, but I can just tell how they interact with me. Like, yeah, he's going to end up turning out like his brother because, you know, how he sees him or his exposure mm -hmm. to him and all that kind of stuff. And so the one thing I decide that's going to make me stand out from him is going to church. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. So my, my mom's oldest sister She's a first lady and her husband's been a pastor for like 60 years. And he had his own church in Houston. And so my cousin, uh, she would take me to 
I started going to church with her at the Baptist church every Sunday. And, you know, and so I started going, going to church from about 16 to when I graduated, just to, you know, appease and make them seem like, hey, I don't want to turn out like him. But I guess God was slowly, slowly, slowly working in my heart in like mysterious ways because, you know, I ended up when college came, I had to make religion my own. And so I started attending these little small little house churches at the ministry at University of Houston. And, uh, you know, I'm getting little, little, little kernels of grace, 2009, 2010, freshman year. And then, you know, I decide in May of 2010, I'm gonna get baptized. And so at that moment I got baptized, you know, it, I knew intuitively that it wasn't the Protestant, you know, uh, the visible sign of an inward change sort of thing that they always sell. But I knew in my mind that, you know, all the stuff that I had done and like all the people that I heard and all the wrong mistakes that I did in this water, when I rose from it, I was going to be like made new. Hmm. And so I immersed myself in that water and I was so extremely happy when I got baptized in May of 2010. So that was like the first conversion. And then, so I'm in college. That's my freshman year. Next year, my my eldest brother, who was like very accomplished, you know, he comes back from Jamaica. This is like 2011. He comes back from Jamaica and he presents to me this book on Marcus Garvey and the UNIA. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, he's exposing, he found this, you know, black nationalist pan-African identity Mm -hmm. through these uh, Marcus Garvey. So he exposes to me and he gives me a book on Marcus Garvey. I'm skimming through it. And I'm liking what I'm reading. Yeah. <clears throat> so me and him are going down a rabbit hole of like, you know, what it means to be a black nationalist and pan-Africanist in America. Yeah. And I'm really liking all the authors and all the uh, speakers and lecturers that I'm listening to at the time. But one thing that I noticed is that a lot of these lecturers and speakers I'm listening to are super critical and speak outright dangerously about Christianity and how it's a white man's religion and how it's oh, yeah. you, uh, you white supremacy and it's a force for colonialism and imperialism and it destroyed Africa. And so yeah. then I'm at this little crossroads where I'm like, man, I want to be a Christian, but I also like this newfound identity that I have and, you know, black nationalism. And so what ended up happening is I ended up discovering James H. Cohn's, you know, theory on black liberation theology. And, you know, as a Christian, I'm like, wow, you know, black liberation, black liberation theology seems super compatible with, you know, these views I already have on African American self determination and how we need to, you know, you know, basically do for ourselves in this country and not rely on outside force. And plus, it's infused with the gospel. And I was like, man, this is really profound. So for many years, from about 2011 to uh, 2013, I'm really just supporting black nationalism, black liberation theology. And I'm just going hard at it at, at, at Texas Southern University. Yeah. And, and uh, about this time, I had, that's my going to my second conversion. In my senior year of college, you know, I'm, I'm doing my own thing. I'm about to graduate February 2013, big man on campus. And I got mm-hmm. a fiery red Mustang. I'm, I'm on top of the world. And I end up having this accident. And, you know, you know, I could have probably died in an accident. And, you know, my car got totaled and I got thrown so many feet from getting hit at a red light. And I just walked away feeling like, man, you know, all that pride and arrogance and, you know, a sense of accomplishment don't mean nothing at this point. 
And so that was on Saturday. So on Monday, I'm at Texas Southern University and I'm just sitting in the science building, just sitting down. And I hear these two people, you know, talking about like, hey, they're talking about the small town called Humble outside of Houston. And they're talking about this church. And they're talking about, you know, I, I grew up in Humble outside of Houston. So I'm like, hey, what are you guys talking about? I'm eavesdropping. And they're like, yeah, we got this church, this really awesome church in Humble. And we have a campus ministry and you should come check it out. So I'm like, cool, I'm going to come check it out today at 4.30. And so I go, go, you know, that Monday and I'm like really impressed by like the small you know, nature and I'm really impressed by the preaching and like everybody seems to be actually living what they say. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I ever had seen that in Christians in college, of like young students my age actually living what they say. And so that day during the ministry, you know, he was pre- hellfire preaching, sound like some Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of angry God type mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm just really convicted by like this staunch, you know, you're going to go to hell if you keep living like this. And so at that moment at the ministry, I'm just like in awe. And I'm like, I, I need to do something different because I clearly just had this wreck and, you know, it just threw my pride and arrogance down. So at that second time, I was like, yeah, I'm going to give my life to Christ 100% for sure this time. And so that's the second conversion. And then, you know, I'm just growing in grace at that point from that moment to uh, I converted to Catholicism. You know, I'm just growing, growing in grace. I applied to seminary. I was going to be a pastor mm. at the local church I was going to. I wanted to be a minister or a pastor. Uh, I was deeply involved in theology and biblical studies and all that good stuff. But along the way, you know, I just kept getting, um, I just kept questioning things like why or what's the most ancient denomination? Like which one has, I want to know how the apostles worship. And I want to know how, you know, the worship was when the apostles left us and stuff. That was the main thing I was wondering about. What what, so, what, what, what kind of what, what kind of inspired that that search? Were you were you coming in contact with like the apostolics, you know, that church, or whatever, and claiming the all the early beliefs, or what? What else was going on that made you want to go down that rabbit hole? Yeah, so I think pretty much going to church and a in on Sundays and just like seeing this really lo-fi praise and worship. Uh, type of format that they have that doesn't really seem organized and it just seems all over the place. Oh, and so, okay. you know, I'm just thinking like, wow, this praise and worship is like um, intuitive and people are just going on with the flow. And I don't think, I don't think something just clicked. Like, I don't think this is how the apostles worship. Like, they didn't, leave <laughs> us, they didn't leave us this. You know, they didn't leave. And I went to, you know, a predominantly black, you know, Baptist church. I, they didn't give us clapping and Holy Ghost stomping. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. But, you know, I pushed it aside, but, you know, steadily it just kept coming up and coming up. And so I did some research and I was like, maybe I should look into the Episcopal denomination. And I was like, mm. you know, I like what I'm looking at, but, you know, this is still fairly new. It's like 400 or so years old. And I'm like, OK, maybe I should look into the Presbyterian denomination. And I'm like, oh, you know, that's still relatively new, but no, not quite there. And then I said, oh, Methodist. And I was like, yeah, definitely not the Methodist church. And so I'm still questioning, like, man, it's something else I got to be there, but I don't know exactly what it is. And so I find, you know, Reformed theology by RC through RC Sproul and you know John MacArthur, and you know, you know, they're driving pretty hard the Westminster Confession. And I'm like, wow, this is good stuff right here. So pretty much Reformed theology became that it, it just glossed over, but it didn't fulfill my question still. 
And so right. for a while, I became a, you know, a Reformed uh, Baptist, and I really appreciated what I learned in the Reformed tradition. Mm-hmm. But, you know, over time, I still had those questions, and I got married, and my wife, mm-hmm. you know, she came to meet with me to the, to the church I was going to. Okay. And, you know, even more and more skepticism started growing, but I'm just still trying to, you know, make it and just go through the motions. And then I, it got to a point when I was attending Sunday worship and I was just like, man, I'm just a body here. The sermon, which is like the focal point in Protestantism, ain't, isn't doing nothing for me. Um, I don't like singing and dancing that much, so that don't really do nothing for me. <laughs> so I'm just here every Sunday just out of, you know, obligation and routine. And so... Um, I start my my job and I'm going through training at that time. And, you know, I, I meet this guy who's a Catholic and, you know, we, we, we start up, start talking and he's like yeah. a real traditional, you know, traditional Latin mass going Catholic. And I'm like, yeah, I thought about Catholicism. You know, I bought a, ca- a catechism one time and I looked through it and it's pretty interesting. And, you know, I tried to convert to Catholicism and give Catholicism a chance, but I just couldn't, um, grasp the wonkiness of it because it seemed like it just seemed like extra biblical to me at the time in my reformed theology and I was like this Mary and stuff this especially the uh the doctrine on salvation is like totally against justification by faith alone and I was like I don't know at that first time I tried to, the first time I tried to convert to or give Catholicism a chance I was like no but you know I meet this guy and we know we steadily start talking and I'm like yeah we got something in common like you know, I don't know anybody at this new organization I work for. And so, you know, we talking and chopping it up. And he know, he's just, you know, he's encouraging me to like, don't give it up. And so I give it a, a try a second time. And I'm listening to a debate with Tim, Tim Staples and some other guy. And like, I'm vibing with Tim Staples at this point. Okay. I'm like, yeah, Tim Staples is, you know, he's, he's giving some good little proofs on the importance of tradition. Mm. And the other guy is like, uh, he throws a, a wrench into the, to his, to my vibe, and I'm like, yeah, that's a that's a pretty hard objection about um, tradition that I don't think I can I don't think I can assent to right now. And so the second time, I was like, no, nope, I'm not gonna give Catholicism a chance. Now, were but, you were you think did you think you were like anti-Catholic at that time? Had you become anti-Catholic, or you just or there were just some things about Catholicism that just didn't work for you? No, I wasn't anti-Catholic. I was just it was just yeah, it just. Catholicism wasn't sitting well with me. There was just a lot of things that seemed so extra and man-made traditions and extra biblical stuff didn't seem like it was supported by history. And then, you know, the great apostasy that the church was compromised and it wasn't until the reformers had to reclaim the true faith. You know, all those different things were going through my mind. Mm. And then... Yeah, all those different things were like definitely in the back of my mind, even when I was trying to give, you know, Tim Staples that, that try, but it didn't work out. But ultimately what happened was... <laughs> it sounds like a couple bad dates. My <laughs> 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 God, we went on a date and, you know, you know, she ate with her feet. Yeah, it just didn't... I don't know about this girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a bad date. But the third day, though, you know, the number three, the third one was real good. So one Saturday, I'm, I'm driving because we had Saturday orientation as a new hire for the first year. And so one day I'm driving and, you know, I used to listen to Catholic radio. I used to listen to Catholic answers, even as a Protestant. I used to always think it was fabulous. And so I'm listening to my local, you know, Catholic radio and they're playing 
EWTN has like the uh, the Divine Mercy chapter then song. Yeah, yeah, three o'clock. Yeah. Right, and so this is early Saturday, and I'm just listening. I'm like, wow, these lyrics of this song is like super impactful. Like I've never heard anything that said yeah. that before, and it just sounded theological. Then it sounded like harmonic, and I was like, wow, this song is really deep. This is from yeah. the Catholic station. So I was like, I think I'm gonna become Catholic now. <laughs> and so they make me I go to training, I go to training, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm really eager to get home because I want to, you know, see where my heart is in, like, see if I'm vibing with the material that I'm reading, see if I'm vibing with the tracks from Catholic Answers. And so, and that third time after, after I heard that Divine Mercy tablet in song, you know, it just, like, the scales just came out. And I was just like, everything I was reading wow. just seemed so, like, it made sense. And so wow. just going back forward some years prior to that, when I first started teaching, I had a coworker. I guess I was being a fundamentalist at the time, but she wasn't a Catholic. But she gave me this book on like Catholic teaching, debunking fundamentalism. And it's called. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, wow, OK. She gave me this book. And then I started reading through it. And I was like, and it's very like, introductory, nothing deep. And mm -hmm. I started reading through that book. And I was like, wow, this stuff makes sense now. You know, I went through. From that moment in like October to through December, you know, I'm just grasping and reading all the information that I can. I'm reading the catechism that I bought at the Goodwill, and I'm yeah. reading all the stuff on Catholic Answers. And I'm listening to lectures, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm already gonna be a cat. I'm gonna become a Catholic, and I'm really enjoying all this information that I'm reading. And uh, yeah, that's the third conversion right there. But you know, the the hurdle after that ended up having to come with my wife because you know my wife was a Protestant, so yeah. You know, that was difficult, you know, explaining to my wife in 2017, after the whole fall of really growing and nurturing this newfound, you know, desire to be a Catholic. And, you know, my wife came into this church that I went to and left her church. And, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of emotions and a lot of, you know, bitterness, a lot of like, uh, I guess, sort of like betrayal. You know, my wife felt like a piece of me was gone. And it's like a how big, long had you guys been? How long had you been married at this time? At that time, we were married for about a year and a half. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's tough. Yeah, and so she was like, my wife, you know, she was, you know, this person. Not that I'm becoming a new person, but you know, this is a whole new identity that I was coming up with, and like a whole new church, and like a whole new sisters. And Christian and Christian Christ, but it's just like a whole new set of things that she had to get used to. And so, and my wife seen Spotlight at that time. <laughs> you know, Spotlight was the movie that uncovered yeah. the, uh, the the yeah. the scandal. Yeah. So she seen Spotlight, and they gave her some ammo right there. And I was like, man, my wife is never going to approve of this. So for, uh, the, for everybody who hasn't, people who are listening or watching on uh, YouTube, Spotlight was the movie. That was focused on the sex abuse scandal, right? Right. The Boston Globe, I think, yeah. uncovered the, the scandal in 2003. And so it, was, it revolved around, like, these reporters who were, you know, investigating and doing all the journalism with the survivors and really breaking the story that really, you know, shook the church back in, like, early thousands. Was that a stumbling block for you, the, the well, sex not abuse at all. <clears throat> I was just more... It wasn't a stumbling block for me. It was just... You know, as I've always understood it, even as an educator, you know, all not all teachers are horrible. You know, some some people do horrible things in in a, in their position, but my wife understood that too. 
but it was just a, you know, a, a sense of like a growing in trust with the priest. You know, like, oh, I don't think I can trust that priest yet because I don't know what that priest is doing. And so, I mean, I guess that was understand. That's understandable from our point of view after you know seeing, reading so much, you know, research and yeah. you know, testimony and all that. But you know, ultimately, you know, as time went on, we stopped attending. So we would go to the the vigil mass on Saturday, and then the, my wife, you know, praise and worship on Sunday. But ultimately, we stopped doing that. And my wife, you know, decided to come to mass full time. And so mm. my wife had been my wife. I mean, we've been doing that for, I mean, before quarantine, maybe like two years. Yeah. So it's like a faithful mass attendant. And she was in RCIA and she's in RCIA or she's finished with RCIA. And she's going to be entering the church, you know, sometime when all this uh, stuff. Wow, happens. man. So that's a lot of, that's, that's a lot of progress for my wife. Maybe yeah, she that's, gonna... that's a blessing for you and your family, man. God has, God has been good to you guys, man. That's awesome. And I want to ask you, but I know your, your parents... I think you you told us they were immigrants, right? From yeah, my father was is an immigrant from from Ghana, and my no. mom's from Texas. Ah, okay, okay. So you you grew up culturally black. You have a culturally black experience growing up. Right, right, right. Okay. Was was um was there is that a stumbling block for you being being a, a black man coming into? Did you perceive the church to be this? I know, because me and you have a couple of things in common. We both went to a historically black university, right? Um, right? And we both had some suspicions about Christianity, the hypocrisy of it, and, and this whole thing. But did you perceive Christianity to be a white man's religion? Did you get caught up in that aspect? No, not at all. So after, okay. even after... Um... Even after uh, I decided the conversion, I didn't, I didn't really... Um, it, that didn't ever cross my mind. I think what really impacted that was, I think when you have to, I mean, it's protocol when you're becoming a, a catechumen or whatever, that you need to pick a confirmation thing. And I think, I didn't ever give it any thought or anything, but, you know, one day I bought a book on like 365 Days of Saints, and I was just flipping through it, and I didn't, trying to figure out a saint who I could identify with. Yeah. And so I ended up finding Peter Claver, my boy, Peter Claver, and I was just like, man, Peter Claver's story is, you know, so profound. And it seems like to me, when I think about the Catholic Church and, you know, it connects all the people of the diaspora together. So although, you know, the slave trade, you know, broke us apart and that was horrific and heinous, you know, the Catholic Church truly unites, you know, all these, all of us, the Caribbean, you know, us in America, European yeah. Us, us in Latin America, we all like back reunited together in Christ. So wow. I always found, um, I always found that you know profound, profound like little mystery. Yeah, that, that's that's something, man. What were you, what Ephraim? What what were you in search of? Because I mean, I see this this journey that you're on. You're doing a, f- a few different things. You're in liberation theology. You're you're in reform. You're in the Black Nationalist movement. Um, what were you in search of? You think? I think it was ultimately about truth. I'm a big like seeker of truth, and I really like. I don't like being lied to. And I think the question of you know Jesus said, "Who do you say I am?" I mean, now I can look at it and say that's a, such an important question. But even back then, I think little small traces of you know who do I say who do you say that I am was you know popping up. And I always wanted to figure out the truth because I don't think. Uh, or even back then, you know, the, the history I always got was, you know, 
or at least I always read it and interpreted from, you know, major theologians and Protestantism was that, you know, Christianity came about in really 1500 in the year, you know, Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation in 1517. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I guess you, when you build a whole systematic theology on that, you know, that becomes your, your thing. But for me, I guess when I really started to question, you know, all the tenets of the Protestant Reformation and the solas and especially like sola scriptura and that against tradition, you know, I just really opened my quest for truth even more because, you know, truth matters. And I think Christ didn't just leave us aimlessly to just get it wrong and lead us in confusion with all these thousands and hundreds of denominations. But, you know, at the heart, you know, it's one truth and there's gotta be one church. So I was always, I was always deep in, trying to find that that one sense of like fulfillment and that one sense of truth. Probably in like all these different, you know, isms and ideologies I was jumping around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a powerful thing. What um so going back to your to your mom, what does she think about this whole this chapter of your life? Oh man, my mom, she she doesn't, uh, I mean, we've had a lot of disagreements and a lot of heated conversations about it. So mm -hmm. during the time when I was, you know, converting in December or the fall of 2016, you know, we had a, a family get together. We have an annual family Christmas Eve dinner. So I picked my mom up and I, on the way home, I was like, yeah, I'm going to tell her that I'm going to become a Catholic and I'm going to enroll in RCA in 2017. Mm -hmm. And I mean, nothing she's going to say going to stop me or anything like that. So I'm like, hey, mom, you know, just in case you want to know. Like, I'm going to become a Catholic. And my mom, we were passing Minnie Mae Park in downtown. And my mom just, like, tore me apart. And I was just like, oh. She was like, how could you do such a thing? That's a horrible church. Don't you know you should become a, you should, even though I'm not a part of the Baptist church, you should stay a Baptist. And I was just like, wow, no, she isn't telling me all this. You know, hurtful. It was really hurtful because I'm sharing something super, you know, happy and I'm, and I'm joyous. And this is something, you know, about me that I'm sharing and vulnerability, I guess, to my own mom. And she just, like, struck that down. You know, we rode in silence for about 30 minutes after that till I dropped her off. And then, you know, I told her, ultimately, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And uh, it's okay if you don't approve of it. Yeah. But since then, it's just always been, you know, my mom, she has, I mean, she approves of it, but, I mean, she still has moments when she just goes off on her rants on institutional religion. And the, oh, Catholic, okay. and the Catholic Church is, you know, the highest institutional religion to her. And, you know, my mom's pretty new agey, new agey uh, universalist. So she yeah. thinks everybody's going to get saved. And all you got to do is just be a good, good person. A good person. So, yeah. But you were kind of, I don't know, I don't know if you um, got that from your mom, but I remember you telling me that you were, you were kind of anti-institutional as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in college, you know, I went to college and or even before I graduated high school, you know, Barack Obama graduated. Uh, he became, you know, president in 2009. I graduated in 2009. And, um, you know, I, I'm coming off the cusp of like, you know, being a progressive. Then I get to college and I'm just reading. I had my degree in social work. And I'm really just immersing myself in the social work tradition and like the major values of social work. And I'm like, man, liberalism and progressivism don't go far enough. And so here I am, 
reading and contemplating about coming up, becoming a socialist. And I order all these, you know, books and literature on socialism and communism. And plus, you know, I'm researching and, and I'm discovering that, you know, in the early 20th century, becoming a, a Marxist was a popular thing for many Black uh, writers like Richard Wright and members of the Harlem Renaissance. And so I'm like, wow, these, you know, figures before me thought, you know, Marxism was uh, the solution to, uh, to the white systematic racism that they experienced. And so, and I just developed a sense of like, mm, I distrust religion. I mean, the distrust, you know, organizations and I don't wanna, you know, join myself to any fraternities, any NAACP, any urban leagues. I don't wanna involve myself in nothing because ultimately I'm just, I, di- I just distrust, you know, what y'all put out. That's interesting. What else? So, man, that's, I mean, you opened up a whole new box right there for me to go down. But so now I'm now I'm wondering what other aspects of your life, um, clearly coming into the church, um, reformed your reform ideas, right? It, it, it brought you into the, the church that subsists now in the Catholic Church today, brought you into the, the true one holy Catholic apostolic church. So that's, that's resolved those theological questions for you that you were in search of. What happened to the churches of the Bible? What, um, what happened to the original form of worship? Becoming Catholic resolved that question for you. But what else did Catholicism resolve for you? What else in you that, that it resolved? Because you told me you were just... Um, progressive did you have progressive ideas such as things on you know abortion and things like this that that becoming a catholic resolve any of those things for you no i think by by the time um by the time i was graduated high school i had pretty much did a political 360 so my last year of college by the time i mean when i entered i was you know so much in uh, Howard Zinn and you know other people of his okay. contemporaries, but both when I left, you know, I, I started reading, you know, Thomas Sowell and Walter oh, okay. Williams and Milton wow. Friedman. Wow. And so I was really interested then in like you know libertarianism and wow. um, you know I guess constitutional conservatism at that point. Yeah. So I guess my values. I mean, I never was it for abortion or anything like that, but okay. you know, I just became more. Um, you know, about personal responsibility, and which yeah. was pretty easy to do since you know a lot of Black liberation theology and you know national Black nationalism focused on like doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty. Um, that was pretty easy to. That was, those were pretty easy to drop too. I mean, I dropped it at quicker than the dime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's price more still. I guess politically or socially, it just still. The search of what's true, what's the common good, huh? Right, right, right. And so, um, once I entered the Catholic Church and I discovered, you know, this, I mean, I, you can still, well, within the Catholic Church, you have like the, the center of truth and the fullness of truth, whether that be in faith, morals. And so, coming into the church, you know, I find this, you know, really, like, for example, you have this really profound, you know, social teaching that esteems and shows human dignity is, you know, essential for the human person. And you have the family as a, you know, basic social unit of society. You know, those are like super profound things now that I look back as a, a married man with a family and um, 
especially the church's teachings on uh, marriage have like impacted my marriage a lot because you know it was a time when we were using you know contraception and after I became a Catholic or in the process of becoming a Catholic you know I told my wife like hey in order for me to go to con uh, confession with a good conscience you're gonna have to stop you know eventually using you know contraception and my wife was kind of like oh here's another Catholic things that you're bringing up and you know we went through a, a seminar and uh, natural family planning and my wife was like super convinced about it she saw it was like she saw it was natural she saw the beauty of it she saw how beneficial it was, how natural it was. And, you know, we, you know, we dropped um, contraception so easily and we picked up natural family planning. And, you know, um, that's just another idea, like the truth about the faith. You know, we don't, they don't really talk about the truth of um, theology of the body or like what our body is designed for. And, yeah. But, you know, we found truth in, we found truth. And in addition, I found like how to be a better husband and how to love my wife effectively through, you know, natural family planning and the sacrament of matrimony. Because when you take the sacrament of matrimony to its fullest degree, you know, um, you know, it's just so profound to, you know, want to love your wife the best that you can and, you know, be the best person that you can be for her. And, you know, ultimately get that person to heaven. So I always say now, or I told somebody recently, you know, although I do want to, you know, work in the inner city and help, you know, blacks become Catholic, even if I don't do that, you know, I help, I've helped lead my wife to the church. So that's a win. And that's a good spiritual thing to do. That's the, the utmost thing you could possibly do. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing that I see about you. When I know some things I know about you on Twitter or some of the things you post, you're never too far left or far right. You always have the Catholic view, which is, you know, we're, we're somewhere right in the center, right? Um, we recognize not every political party has the right answer, but the, the Catholic church um, um, is, is beyond what politics can answer, right? Right, that, right, right. Transcends um, the political. Yeah, it does. It does. It, it transcends that space. And I, I noticed that some of the things you post um, represents that. And I see in you a person who the Catholic church has touched in every aspect of your life. And that, that's amazing. You talked about, um, Perhaps one day seeing how, you know, you can reach out to more people who are black Americans and, and show them the be this beauty of the Catholic Church. What are some of the, the struggles, you think? And I'll preface this. I'll give a historical preface to this in a second. But I want to ask you, what are some of the, some of the struggles that black people have of coming to the Catholic Church? In Cyprian Davis' book, which I, I know you read, The History of Black Catholics, um, there was a guy named, um, I think his name was Raymond Burke. Um, out of New York, he's a priest, and he is one of the people. He had, you know, the, the bishops United States. They, they, you know, they are really being pressed by the Vatican to really dig into this question after slavery. What are we going to do with Black Americans? Because um, now they, the Vatican thought it was a good time for the church to reach out. So, of course, the United States bishops, a lot of them weren't interested, but um, their, 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 you know, their scapegoat plan was let's start a committee. You know, starting a committee is always, you know, one of those things that you do where you don't want to answer a question. But out of out of that, um, you know, Burke comes and he, you know, he's a guy that really starts looking into this issue. And he's a white priest, but he sees he he thought there there were four issues that he saw um, bringing blacks into the Catholic Church. He thought um, blacks were 
black Americans were very promiscuous. He was looking at, you know, he's, I guess he's interacting with some. He said, man, they, some have multiple wives. They have kids everywhere. Um, Freemasons, he, he thought that um, a lot of black Americans were Freemasons. So that was, that was another stumbling block. But then the other, other two stumbling blocks is, is he thought one of the things that blacks could do to bring more blacks to the Catholic Church was that there should be more black priests and blacks should have their own church and their own bishops and priests, sort of a Jim Crowism, segregation, and this whole thing. And so with that historical context, now we're in 2020, obviously, um, you're an educator, I mean, you know, um, what, 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 are, what, do you, what do you think are some of the stumbling blocks today that may prevent that stops blacks, more black Americans from coming into the Catholic Church? Yeah, I appreciate you giving, you know, the background about from Brother Cyprian Davis's book, you know, which is a classic book that anybody should read. But I think uh, all those things are definitely, you know, barriers. When I think about, you know, the black people that I've spoken to, especially the ones my age, some of the you know most basic things that they really don't know about the church. Like a lot of, I have one you know particular friend who I talk to. You know, he is he sees Catholicism as just man-made traditions, and so he's approaching it from a you know Protestant lens. Then you have some people who I know for sure. Um, who just see it as uh, you know white like we talked earlier white people's church, yeah. and then and so it's it's probably this multifaceted. But I think one thing that I think would would really be beneficial is that a lot of people just don't know about the Catholic Church. Like they like they quote that says you know a lot, million people have heard you know something about the Catholic Church that's wrong, and that's true. Like they've heard and seen something about the Catholic Church, but they don't actually like know it, know it yeah. enough. So I think, you know, evangelization is going to be the biggest, uh, the biggest tool to get, you know, more Black Americans into the church. And I think tapping, I mean, like you just said, you know, the USCCB at that time, or those bishops, they just created a committee. But I think we got to do more than just, you know, create committees and dialogue. Like, there are concrete things that we can possibly do to, you know, get um, you know, more Black Protestants, Jehovah's Witnesses, non-Christians into the church in the inner city, because that's a whole, I mean, we talk about the church in America dying and all that, but in the inner city, you know, there's thriving, flourishing amount of people who attend, you know, cults and um, non-Protestant, um, and the cults like Jehovah's Witness and stuff like that, or, or Christian cults and stuff like that, or non-Christian cult. And so they, we, we have a lot of, a lot of good harvest and the harvest is very plentiful in these areas i think so i think it's going to take a lot of education and equipping people with you know, correct knowledge about mm -hmm. catholicism is because you know back in the 1800s or you know 19th century the reason why so many you know people left or black people left the catholic church is because protestant protestantism seemed so feasible like in protestantism you didn't have to go through the clergy you didn't have exclusion in protestantism you can be your own man and so I think that veneer of, um, you know, illusionment of Protestantism can easily be torn down with, you know, proper dialogue and evangelization. And then I think we can, I think there's a big tool or a big way to get more priests in the priesthood for African-Americans. Because once we, you know, get um, in dialogue and have these conversations with African-Americans, 
we don't have to, you know, necessarily push education. You know, we like our people, we like education. You know, education rule the nation or education is power is what I was told when I graduated. And when I told people I didn't want to go to college and I wanted to go be a scientist somewhere, they looked at me like I was dumb. So <laughs> so I think I think once we get past the narrative of, you know, education is power. And you can use your education, but you need a spiritual, you can have spirituality and education, both of those two working simultaneously in a vocation to the priesthood or religious life. You know, it can definitely do, you know, powerful things. But then again, um, you know, that's an area that's not really, I don't think, prioritized. About, yeah. You know, advocating for black vocations and yeah. um, to the priesthood. And so that's just an area I really want to focus in and evangelizing African-Americans in the inner cities and, you know, bringing them to the church and, you know, one day one or two seeds to the priesthood or something like that. Yeah. I think it happens just like your family. I mean, you became a Catholic, your wife came with you. Now you, your, your kids are in the church. I mean, it happens. I think one person at a time and then a family. And But I think I agree with you hundred percent. That is definitely untapped. Right. I think the Catholic church for quite a long time, not the case anymore. We're closing a lot of schools. Um, but you used to have a lot of Catholic schools in the, in, the, in the city, but you didn't have a whole lot of conversions as well. I mean, students went there as a good school, maybe went there to play sports, but wasn't a whole lot of conversions. So there was like a missing piece there. And I think you just said it, evangelization, right? Right. I think um, I, I, I always said that I, 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 put, I posted a tweet about this some time ago, but, you know, I've always said that it's not enough for us to send you know, these black kids to these Catholic schools. Like, even though these are perhaps really good schools and, you know, they get really good results, it's not enough just to send them there without, you know, some sort of engagement, a critical engagement with parents and the community. Like, you just can't have a Catholic school in, in the hood somewhere and not engage that those families with more than just a fall festival. Like, we need to do, the church needs to, you know, tap into those communities and uh, yeah, it's good that you offer an education, but what about like the souls of these people in the community? Mm. You're going to yeah. offer that's going to stand out. And we have the solution that stands out in yeah. the fullness of the church uh, that we can offer. Yeah. I was talking to a guy. I don't know if you ever ran into him in, um, you know, the Black Catholic circle that we have on the internet. Um, but his name was um, Nate Tyner. Um, right, 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 right. I know him. I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we were we were talking. I think I'm going to have his um his um video post a little shortly before yours. So if you guys watch this, go back. I'll link it. I'll watch watch Nate because I asked Nate this question. And matter of fact, this is this this is whole this, you know our whole conversation surrounded. He wrote this article over on Word and Fire talking about um how there are a lot of famous black Catholics who... Right. Um, it's kind of like the movie Hidden Fences or something like that. I forget the, the exact name of his article, but it was Hidden Figures, I think it was, in, of black Catholics. What do, what do you think? There are a lot of famous black Catholics, right? I mean, recently Kobe died. I mean, he know, but who knew he was Catholic, right? I mean, there's a right, lot right, of right. famous black Catholics who don't aren't very public with their faith. That's a double-edged sword, though, because some of them, if they became public with their faith, you know, we kind of look at them funny, you know. Right, <laughs> right, right. The whole otherness. 
But yeah, what what do you think about is is that is that something that you you think we should encourage more people in in the social space who are Catholics to be more public with their faith? Yeah, I think that would be beneficial. I mean, I think for a lot of people in America, and especially in the mainstream Catholic Church, you know, black being black, nobody would I guess ask a, a black person, "Hey, are you a Catholic?" I guess they would automatically assume that you're a Protestant. And so I think it's going to take some, I don't want to say publicity, but, you know, we we do need to open up and, you know, share our stories, mm-hmm. faith stories, and, you know, let the world know that, you know, hey, although we are small in number in the millions, you know, Black Catholics do exist. And, you know, uh, I guess once you bypass that otherness of, you know, what it means, what a Black Catholic look like, you can easily, you know, start to have good conversations about, hey, what can we do to, you know, ensure that more Black Catholics exist? And, like, what can we do to nurture the faith and, you know, reach into these communities and evangelize, uh, you know, African-Americans and get them to the fullness of faith? And uh, it's going to take a lot of, it's going to take a lot of, uh, you know, Black Catholics to get out of their comfort zone and just, you know, speak up and, um, you know, present themselves like that. Yeah. Well, let's keep doing our part, man, because videos like this, you you tweeting and stuff like that, you never know who bumps into this stuff, right? And they'd be like, oh, black Catholics? I didn't I didn't know black people could be Catholic. You know, that type of thing. You just, you just right, never know. Right, right, right. So, man, Ephraim Minnie, man, we, we thank you for, I thank you for coming on um, my Catholic, I mean, um, talking Catholic. But, but this is the end of the show, right? And so... I always ask five questions and I want five answers back. I don't, there's nothing fancy about this part of the show, just five questions, five answers. And um, so if you're ready to go, we'll go. I'm ready to go. All right. <laughs> Who is your favorite Catholic saint? Oh, Peter Claver. You know, yeah. I already said Peter Claver, he connects all of us African, the diaspora together. I'm a boy right there. Have you ever thought about becoming a knight of St. Peter Claver? Yeah, I reached out, and um, that's a that's an ongoing process. I need to pick back up for sure. Awesome, awesome. What is the last gift you bought your wife? I bought her some Mike and Nikes yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wives love Mike and Nikes. That's true. We gotta get our wives together. They got that in common. <laughs> All right, um, Kobe Bryant or LeBron James? Uh, I'll go with Kobe Bryant, you know. Mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant was doing his thing when I was growing up. Yeah. It sounds like you struggle with that a little bit, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> All right. Number four, if you can go back in time 500 years ago, who would you like to have a cup of tea with, have a conversation with? Oh, 500 years ago? I would want to go... See- Go um, talk to Frederick Douglass. Yeah. You know, I've I've always admired his uh, the narrative of Frederick Douglass, and then just hearing like the I guess the juxt- juxtaposition of you know being you know Protestant or not him, but you know the slave owners being like staunch Protestants who go to church on Sunday, who and then go beat their slaves and you know commit all these atrocities. I always find that ironic, and you know, and Frederick Douglass even mentioned that in his. His autobiography, like the irony of being a Christian with slaves. And so I would love to, you know, get his perspective and, you know, tap more into his narrative that he, the narratives that he wrote. 
about his life. You know, he was a good statesman, very yeah. good statesman. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, he's one. He's one of my favorites, man. Um, the last question: Usher or Chris Brown? Man, uh, I'd probably go with Usher. I like <laughs> Confessions, man. Confessions came out in like middle school, high or something. Man, Confessions was 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 good, man. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. Always ask my wife and my youngest, well, my third youngest daughter. You know, they go back and forth about that. So I thought I'd, I want to get a male's perspective because I'm, I'm definitely usher myself. So you need to do a uh, versus. You know, they have the thing. It's popular now. It's like, oh, this artist versus versus. Like usher and Chris yeah. Brown need to go against each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that'd be legendary. That'd be legendary. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, brother, you for many, man. Thanks for coming on, um, on Talking Catholic, man. I appreciate it. Let's talk again. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Fool me, we can't get fooled again. <laughs>